0: Hey guys, this is your host Gooby and welcome to the Toon Balloon podcast, our outlet to discuss, theorize, and enjoy our favorite webtoons with the occasional anime and manga sprinkled in between. In this episode, we will be covering one of my favorite webtoons, Everything is Fine by Mike B Comics. When I first got into webtoons, this was one of the few that had gotten me addicted to dedicating good chunks of my days to just reading webcomics and this was when it was still on canvas. I had even mentioned it in my very first podcast episode. I have always had the intention to deep dive this webcomic when it was still on canvas, but I am so thankful that it is an original now and that Mike B. Comics has come so far with this amazing story. If you love Mike B. Comics' work, I strongly recommend you check his Patreon and shop. There is Everything is Fine merch, storyboard art previews, and so much more. I will be sure to include all the links in the description below. I love that it is getting so much recognition and I am so happy to see other people creating insane theories for this series. It just makes it that much more fascinating and enjoyable to read. This episode will be covering quite a few aspects of Everything is Fine. We'll be talking about what has been going down in the story so far from episodes 1 through 12. This would also include talking about its many nods to the novel 1984 by George Orwell, along with discussing my own theories, discussing clues in the series, and... I have thought of so many things to talk about after doing a lot of heavy reading over both of these series. I will also be featuring a few other theories that I had gotten from a few of my followers on Instagram. There will be spoilers, so you have been warned. Now, let's talk Everything is Fine by Mike B. Comics. Before we dive into the nitty gritty, I am going to shortly catch you up to speed over what has been going on so far from chapters 1 through 12. So the key events that have happened so far in this story are that we have Maggie and her husband Sam doing their best to live under the conditions of their environment. That is wearing these giant cat masks whilst doing everyday people stuff like eating spaghetti, cleaning, sleeping, bathing, feeding their dead dog Winston, and more. There are many many nods to constant surveillance and by the looks of it, everything is fine. Sam is a working man and Maggie is a housewife. We follow Maggie around as she goes grocery shopping or when she stares off at an empty playground in town. Maggie and Sam try to have a usual dinner at home only to be interrupted by a disheveled homeless person begging for food. Sam feeds the guy their dead dog Winston, and the couple then join their neighbors Linda and Bob for dinner. Their other neighbor Charlie joins as well. During dinner, Maggie and Charlie have to sneakily hide away in Linda's bathroom to discuss trains that Charlie owns in his basement. Unpleasantly, Linda is peeping in on this conversation. The day Maggie tries to see these trains, the authorities arrive and place Charlie under red status. Eventually, Maggie is dealing with the aftermath of these events as she has to forget the events that transpired, which is not easy and Maggie eventually goes back to Charlie's now yellow taped home to find out what is in this darn basement. Okay, so after trying to summarize the events that have led to where we are now in the story, I wanted to cover a few things that I find quite significant in this suspenseful story. For starters, the many means of surveillance in this society of theirs, we get a lot of shots in the story of cameras in almost every nook and cranny you can think of. Not only that, but those cat masks also play a role in ensuring that the citizens are behaving the way they are supposed to. And even the citizens play a large role in the society's surveillance system. Linda for one is a huge snitch and ratted both maggie and charlie out in order to prove her loyalty this whole society just screams totalitarianism which is something that i will touch on in a little bit by the looks of it these characters are not supposed to show negative emotions because they are constantly trying to play off this oh what a great day it is facade whatever is going on everything is definitely not fine (laughs) but they can't say that For one thing, loyalty is very important and this is made prominent by characters like Linda and the officer Tom. Something that I noticed with this comic is that the titles of each chapter hints at something important. Even if some can be quite comedic, I'm looking at you, episode 3, because even though it's called Mom Spaghetti and the first reference I think of is of course an Eminem song called Lose Yourself, I think it actually plays a huge part at foreshadowing the importance of Maggie being a mom. Especially since episode 12 proves that she indeed had a child, a girl for that matter. So by looking at a few of the chapter titles, I can come up with a few clues that could be going on in this story. For chapter 1, it's called The New Forever. Right off the bat, I believe that this whole society slash government mess is fresh and the characters have only lived in this deeply invasive lifestyle for a short time. The first chapter largely focuses on Maggie's inability to forget about something, this something being her own child as she keeps seeing images in her coffee. And even Sam, her own husband, insists that she needs to forget due to reasons that we did not know yet. Episode 2 is called Swings and Roundabouts, which, after a quick Google search, explains that this is a saying that means that there are as many advantages as there are disadvantages in a particular situation. This could be talking about their current lifestyle. Technically, the citizens are taken care of by the government. For example, they always have access to food, all by Um, all canned food by the looks of it, but they are constantly watched and inconvenienced. So this could be the disadvantages that come with the supposed advantages that the society offers them. Episode 4 is called Mise en place, which means putting everything into place in French. This is also considered a cooking term because it is usually referenced to putting Um, the ingredients together, putting all of the preparations for the meal into place. As to what this could mean for the story, hmm, well it could relate to how Linda may have been suspecting Charlie for a while and used him as her way to get to Lakeview, or this is also her way of having her own clique that will help each other in order to get to Lakeview. This could be Linda putting everything in place for her own agenda. What do you think? I also think it could be a reference to Maggie because it is something that I will get into later in the episode. As for episodes 8 and 9, these both give large references to the novel 1984. Echoed Julia and An Iron Voice are both referencing scenes involving the protagonist and his lover Julia. The quote goes We are the dead, he said. We are the dead, echoed Julia dutifully. You are the dead, said an iron voice behind them. These chapters involve Charlie getting caught by the government for whatever it is he is hiding. In 1984, Winston and Julia were caught for the deeds that they were enacting. So I can see a connection there. (laughs) And in episode 11, it is called Carrot and Stick. Which, defined by Google, is a metaphor characterized by both the offer of a reward and the threat of punishment. Which this chapter demonstrates through Maggie. She is essentially offered the reward of not being put in red status. Like Charlie, but she is still threatened that if she crosses the line at all, she will face the consequences for her actions. This could also refer to Linda collecting the reward for snitching while Maggie is punished for her actions. This story revolves around the concept of a totalitarian government controlling every aspect of these people's lives through cruel headpieces that dictate when they can or cannot eat. They also video surveillance everything they do. They are offered meaningless jobs, or worse, they threaten their lives. Many of the occurrences we have been shown to us are reminiscent to the novel by George Orwell that I mentioned earlier, 1984. After noticing some hints and similarities, as well as large Easter eggs left by the author in the titles, as well as their dead dog Winston, I decided to activate my big brain and dust off the old freshman English class readings that I studied back in high school. <laughs> now, I only read Animal Farm, but oh, I was aware of 1984's themes since this was heavily discussed in my class. Thank you, Miss Thompson. <laughs> Thanks to Everything is Fine, I have finally ventured into studying this book in my free time in order to find some connections and dig up some good theories for you guys. (laughs) First and foremost, 1984 is a dystopian fictional novel about a guy named Winston Smith. Who wants to rebel from the oppressive authoritarian government led by the party. The party is led by Big Brother, a powerful and probably not real persona that actively works to control those within the society. They work really hard to strip people of their individuality in order to receive complete loyalty from their people. They do so by controlling everything that is distributed in the society, so things like food, media, history books, and they even created a new language so people couldn't get creative in thought. People were given strict guidelines, and the government chose who they will marry, where they will work, and how they will live. This was often enforced by the thought police, and when the main protagonist began to rebel by having a love affair with Julia, it is the catalyst to the very grim ending of the novel. Winston is tortured to the brink of loving Big Brother and giving his absolute loyalty to the party, foregoing his love for Julia, and living his life to mindlessly listening to what the party gave him. There are many elements in this book that I believe Everything is Fine takes inspiration off of, and one of the many is the fact that the government heavily controls the characters' lives through surveillance. Now, I don't think they control who they marry just because, in the recent flashback we get in episode 12, it kind of implies that both Maggie and Sam have been together for a while and have had a loving relationship prior to the government taking control. Um, We get that cute little flashback of them talking about crocodile teeth with their daughter, who we don't know the name of yet. I feel that this is fresh in their lives since it doesn't seem that Maggie has been unable to let go of the past like everyone else has. The government in 1984 heavily focuses on the thoughts of the citizens. They want to make sure that they do not waver from staying loyal. Essentially, the party and Big Brother brainwash people to almost follow them blindly. Kind of like a cult, they are oblivious to what is going on and they just follow the instructions given by their um, higher ups. One good example of manipulating through media for their own gain is rewriting history or even insisting that 2 plus 2 equals 5. They brainwash them to the point of believing something that isn't true. I think Everything is Fine as a good example of this in the first chapter. Look at the alarm clock in the very first panels of that chapter. It has 260 as the time. Brainwashing? You know the jobs that are given to the men in this story that have them working with boxes that only lead to an incinerator. They are given meaningless jobs that lead to them living lives without any worth. I think in Everything is Fine, it focuses on emotions since none of the characters are allowed to be sad. And when they do get sad or out of character, the red light activates on the cat mask. Anytime there is a quiver in their emotional state, we get the red eye. I have a few speculations of what this could mean, either the red eye indicates that they are reminded of who is watching them, kind of like how in the novel the characters heard the iron voice, or that they are given an image of their worst fear, much like in the novel, the way the thought police got through to Winston was to show him his greatest fear, rats they did so by sticking his head in a cage full of rats and said they were going to let them eat his face in which winston gives in to the thought police by saying he wants julia the love of his life to suffer this instead this could be a method of control by the government of everything is fine or like some theories i have read they are given a visual of their own children in order to keep them straddled in this lifestyle and force obedience onto them. Now what could possibly be going on with the children and Everything is Fine? A few things come in mind. The kids could have been killed, but that wouldn't explain the ever-growing efforts to continue to be good and loyal to the government. They must be alive. Now in the novel, children are manipulated into becoming spies for the party. They give intel to the Thought Police if their parents are acting suspicious in any sort. Now for everything is fine, we don't see children anywhere. We see empty playgrounds, but no kids. The kids could have been taken away to be re-educated with propaganda since it sounds like they could be held captive by the government. It also could be said that with being held in captivity, It also means that the government could use them as pawns to control the parents more. I think there are are a lot of possibilities for what had happened to the children. I am so intrigued by what this story could have in store for us. Because I think the children in the story hold a huge, huge um, weight. And what forces this story to keep on continuing to drive and reach its climax. I feel like... Um, for Maggie and herself like her and her husband have suffered a lot of loss due to the fact that they don't have their daughter anymore and this is what ultimately will drive them into um, positive uh, motivations or it could drive them to an even darker path. I also would like to mention that people who are removed from both societies are to be forgotten. In this case, everyone has to forget that Charlie ever existed, which has me believe that everyone knew who his wife was originally. She isn't here anymore and I get the feeling that the neighbors are far more aware than they let on. Forgetting people is crucial in this world and Maggie can't seem to do it. Sam, on the other hand, seems to put on a front that he forgets but is well aware of their daughter's existence and works hard for her own good. I want to discuss a little bit about the relationships in this story. Maggie and Sam seem like they used to be so happy together after seeing that flashback in episode 12. I mean, if an evil government took over, I wouldn't be very happy either. Um, It does seem like their relationship is insanely strained and with good reason as they hint at the lack of intimacy they used to share. I wonder if this is the government's hold on them or that they decide themselves that they no longer want to be intimate because I think even in 1984, sex was very like very frowned upon and it wasn't something that they were allowed to do. So with Winston and Julia having that love affair, it was so taboo for the government. And I can't tell if that's what the government's controlling over these two. Like, oh no, you cannot have sex or is it more like they just don't want to anymore? I know we should be getting more clarification on this matter in the future, although I am worried about these two ever since the Charlie incident. Maggie is having a difficult time coping with the matter and she isn't communicating with Sam very well. i like to share one of the theories my followers shared with me on Instagram this is from at underscore ivory and they said sam is going to betray slash rat out maggie as she continues investigating i think this is a very plausible theory considering that the main couple seems to be demonstrating the immense strains this government puts on relationships they are a great example of what pushes people to do things they wouldn't have done before They were so loving and bright and happy in that flashback that we now see two people almost becoming strangers to each other as the story moves forward. Something like Sam betraying Maggie would be so possible because he may think it would be for her own good or that it would affect their daughter negatively if she doesn't behave. Another theory that a follower shared with me is from at Ayako YC. They said that her husband isn't actually her husband, maybe Charlie was. And I think after episode 12, I do find that this may be debunked, only because it seems that the flashback provides some clarity on Sam and Maggie's relationship. I do however think that Charlie may have been her husband at first because of their interactions in their first meetings. I also assumed they were going to have an affair, but by the looks of it, I was wrong about that. (laughs) So another theory um, shared with me was from at pot of gold comic. Charlie was her son, possibly. I wish I knew how old these characters were, I want to say that Charlie is around the same age as Maggie since he has a daughter of his own, but then again, you never know what this story has in store for us. Now that Maggie is investigating Charlie's home, what could possibly be in that basement? We will take a short break and return after this short musical interlude with some more theories and analysis. So let's talk about that basement. So we already have Attack on Titan discussing a basement in their story. Then we have WandaVision. And now we have Everything is Fine. I actually wanted to touch up on a joke that I remember Mike Birchall um, touching up on on his Twitter. I actually remember that Everything is Fine came out on canvas before WandaVision had ever came out. And when it went on hiatus to become an original, WandaVision came up. It gave me the same eerie vibes and when The Basement showed up, I remember Mike Birchall was going nuts that it had a basement too. (laughs) I mean, you could probably look on his twitter and probably find it, but it was just so funny with the timing and everything. And I know people compare the two stories a lot and I can definitely see the similarities. Anyways, The Basement. So I have a couple of thoughts. One. It could be an underground railroad. I have seen that theory around a lot in the comment section of the story. (laughs) Two, it could be his daughter or his wife that he has been helping by having them hide away in the basement. Maybe his wife was put on red status before. Three, it could be an escape from surveillance. Four, it is just trains and the poor dude was just misunderstood by freaking Linda. <laughs> I think in regards to an escape, I feel like this could hint at either Charlie has found a way to speak with others who think alike without the worries of the government peeping in on them. Whether he has been smuggling people in as a way to help those placed on red status, I feel this could be plausible since the government controls those cat masks. Being placed on red status is essentially a death sentence. They control when they can eat, and that is only after swearing their allegiance, but with it being on red status, they probably are locked tight so they have no access to food, essentially just starving them. Much like that homeless guy that ate Winston, he had torn a hole through the mask in order to eat. The citizens have to put rat poison in their garbage so red status folks can't eat. Maybe Charlie feeds them. Maybe he smuggles them away from surveillance so they could eat and he wouldn't get in trouble. Charlie uses a lot of aluminum foil, so either he wraps up warm food or is using them to make tin foil hats. I know conspiracy theorists use tinfoil hats to deflect I guess waves, so that way no one can read their minds or something. (laughs) So maybe he uses the foil to barricade any possibility of surveillance, we'll just have to see. Now, I wanted to tap into some things that I have noticed in the story that I think is either important or have some sort of sustenance to what we know about the characters so far. So these are small things that I noticed after a good few reads of the comic. Episode 1 has Maggie looking at rainy weather and saying, oh, what a lovely day. Honestly, this could be the weather she vibes with, (laughs) but this could also mean something else. I mean, they do live in a strange environment, so loving rain I don't think is so out of character. But at the same time, it kind of hints to something else I noticed later on in another chapter. So from episode 2, there was one can of tuna that was in Japanese, I presume. I think the government controls culture in this society as well. All of the cans look the same, but one is in a different language. They could possibly control language and they have maybe a standalone speech or some sort um, or even a standalone culture to say the least they have no diversity or variety everyone is the same essentially because of the cat heads everyone practices the same culture and that is essentially obeying the government and only that government in 1984 they created their own language called Newspeak, and it was so limiting in order to not have them create creative thought and rebel. So I could kind of see this society trying to manipulate the cultures around them so that way they don't um, create individuality and try to um, seek out a different type of loyalty to people. I don't know, like, I guess they just don't want them to rebel because all they want is to control these people and know what's going on with them, control their motions, everything around them. In episode four, we get two interesting clues. One is Maggie's tattoo that she has on her leg. It looks to me that it was either an onion, a carrot, and some celery. Um, It's a little hard to see, but they are indeed vegetables. Considering the title of episode four, is mise en place and that is also considered a cooking term, I'm thinking that Maggie used to be a chef, although now she burns everything she cooks and has no passion for it. Everything they eat is in cans, which I think can definitely drain her passion for cooking if she were a chef in her past. We also get a comment from Bob in this chapter as he points out how pretty the sunset looks, but that the smell is getting in the house. What could that possibly mean? Maybe they are in a containment center. Maybe the sun is artificial. I think my theory for this story (laughs) is that possibly they could be in some sort of dome of some sort. I don't know, but it seems that the government is also manipulating nature around them as well. I also wonder, does the rain have a certain smell? (laughs) I'm not too sure, but I do think it's a little strange to hear some of these peculiar comments from the characters in the story because it all has significance. I think the way Mike Birchall writes the story and has a way, I don't know how to explain it. Um, Timing and panels, they all line up in a way where it feels significant. And even the shortest phrase has so much importance to it because the delivery of it all is what sticks out to me. Sometimes the characters could say the most simplistic things, but they also feel like the most significant. Her saying that it's a lovely day and then you see rainy weather outside and then you hear Bob saying, oh, it looks great outside, but then the smells getting in. I have no idea what that could possibly mean. (laughs) And I'm worried that it's much more sinister than we think. So I have a couple theories of my own for this story, and I think I've already sprinkled in my own theories and observations throughout this episode so far, but this is what I kind of think is what may be going on just overall by my analysis, by what I think, and by my hunches. Um, So my theory for this story is that Maggie is going to attempt to rebel from the government, but. Due to the high powers of the higher ups, I feel they will really use her vulnerabilities against her. Her husband may even turn against her and her daughter could get hurt in the process. I do think we will see Charlie again, but in a state that will be jarring to witness. And I don't even think Lakeview is real and that Linda is getting just as manipulated by everyone else. I think even Bob might get turned over by Linda since I think she would do anything for her own gain in this oppressive environment. I do worry that if Maggie fails we may see a side of her that would be so solemn and I am not ready to see that. And I would be so heartbroken if her husband were to turn on her and because I think he is slightly more obedient to the government than she is because you can tell she's cracking by every episode. And I mean, in the recent ones, she's trying to tell herself to forget, forget, forget. And in the end, she doesn't forget. She instead initiates and is active and trying her best to understand what is going on around her and try to fight for something that she believes in and loves. And that is her daughter. I could tell that she really believes in her daughter because no matter how hard she tries, she cannot forget that little girl. And those sweet little memories will always hold a very special place in her heart and in no way i hope that the government will be able to erase that out of her because they seem to try to erase that out of everybody around them i also am curious does linda and bob have a child of their own and are they just as um heartbroken as maggie and sam or have they been childless this whole time and so they are more willing to obey the government because they don't have something That they are holding dear to their hearts. I'm very curious about that as well. I do think something that's really significant in this story is family and I think that's something that not only is probably a large theme in this story but also what's going to be like a key player in these characters. I feel like as it moves forward, Maggie is going to be motivated by her daughter in a different regard compared to Sam. She looks very active in trying to rebel and by the looks of it Sam is going in a different direction. He's trying to obey the government and hopefully he will get good rewards in the end. And then I remember that little scene that we had in the very first episode where um, Maggie mentions something kind of like gambling. because the conversation goes that um, Sam is going to be working extra harder because he wants to get a promotion and he said the only way to get a promotion in the end is by I guess showing and delivering his not loyalty but I guess his work ethic but this also means that he is sacrificing his time and his (laughs) his willpower I guess because he has to work with a guy he can't stand. So then of course Maggie kind of gives her insight that Um, I guess Sam kind of has to brush off because it's kind of out of character for what the government wants out of them. And that's essentially when she says, hmm, what's that? Says Sam. I just, is playing the game really the best way? Honey, I, says Sam. And Maggie says here, like, you can play roulette as much as you want, but in the end, who owns the casino? And of course, like I said, he has to brush this off because it's kind of out of character. I'm like, yeah, it was kind of (laughs) suspicious. But I think it plays a big part on how they see the world. She sees it as a way of like, I got to be active. I have to put my foot down and I got to put in the work in a different way. Because Sam is like, I'll just play the game. I'll do what they say and hopefully they will reward me with something that I wanted in the end. And by the looks of it, they disagree on that (laughs) because she even points out to him that who owns the casino and the casino could easily just be the government in this situation. Like he is playing the roulette there's a high chance he may get a promotion, but there's a high chance that he won't. And in reality, there's a high chance they could get their daughter back, and then there's a high chance that they won't. And either method they go about for it, it might not be sustainable because she she even says, who owns the casino? I mean, are there, are both their efforts futile? I'm feeling a little cynical. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just because I was reading 1984, and the ending was so grim and very, very... Um, not disappointing, but just it, it kind of just puts you in shock because you're just like, well, dang, that sucks. And I'm, I'm like thinking, I hope this doesn't have like the same interpretation that man, efforts are futile. (laughs) I would like to think it's helpful, but it's also, you know, a horror genre. So I'm expecting some scary stuff in the future and possibly some things that'll make me feel a little grim because I kind of think that's the point. It's got to put that, that thrill in you because in the end of the day, um, this is all about being, everything is fine, I guess, (laughs) in the end of it. And maybe they will constantly play a facade or maybe they will get their daughter back and maybe they will be able to rebel against the government. I'm not too sure, but I know I'm excited to read more. And I also think this series has me asking more questions, but I love that this webtoon has me so clueless. I am so in for the ride. (laughs) When I read it on canvas, it used to be in complete black and white, and you would get hints of red. Kind of like Sin City. So when I saw this was going to be in color for the first time, I was both shocked and intrigued. I think Mike Birchall does a wonderful job with the pastel palette. Before the black and white nailed that eerie vibe that he was going for, but this pastel palette is incredible at making everything seem so ordinary, but then it hides this sinister energy as the characters interact and talk and deliver their lines. Considering that we have finally hit the mark where the series was at in Canvas, now I am just as clueless as everyone else, and I think that is awesome. <laughs> because the Canvas series left off on episode 9 and Iron Voice. And to see that when we finally made it there, I was like, okay, this is it. We are in for some good stuff, because I have no idea what's going to happen next. And it's going to be new, and it's going to be fresh. And we were just getting out of hiatus, so it was like a thrill ride. Like, "Oh, we are in. (laughs) And I was so hyped for the next chapter, because I didn't know what was coming. And now I can be excited to see what is coming up now, since I don't know what's going to happen now. Uh, for a little while, I was like, yeah, I know there's going to be changes because I anticipated changes. And so seeing the changes, it was so pleasant and just overall storytelling. It's brilliant. This story is brilliant. And I really want more people to read it. And I love that so many are reading it now. And I love seeing all the theories and new fans and more people to interact with. Because whenever I would tell something about the story um, before, they were like, well, what are you talking about? I've never read that one. And to hear that they are reading it now, it's just so surreal and amazing. And I am so happy for Mike Virtual And I am, I am just going to congratulate him in here, even if he doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> uh, I am so thankful that you write such an amazing story with so many hints and clues and significance and, you know, just everything involved. It makes me question life, <laughs> uh, you know. Considering all of that, the connections in this story shares with 1984 is so enlightening and I feel like the similarities help me see this story a lot differently now themes that I feel can really hit the nail on the head for what this story could be planning to convey, I think it's awesome that I can tap into my inner English teacher and try to decipher everything I see. Who knows? I may be wrong about everything, but it's so fun to investigate and predict. It's like saying when you look at a picture of a rock and they're like telling you, try to tell me what's going on with this picture. I'm like, it's a rock. And they're like, no, you need to give me the meaning. And I'm like, okay, I'll give you something. And then they're like, no, it was just a rock. I'm like, how could you do this to me? You made me swear sweat, blood, and tears, <laughs> and in the end, it's just literally what I said in the beginning. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but I am so happy, and I can't wait to predict more and read more from this series, and I'm just so thrilled, and I definitely plan on covering more in the future, and if you are into this series, I hope you can join me along and theorize with me and analyze with me and just overall obsess over this webtoon. So if you have theories going on for this series in mind, let me know your thoughts and opinions of what we discussed today in this episode by messaging me through either of my social media handles. Both my Twitter and Instagram handles are at TheToonBalloon. I would love to hear from you. Also, definitely tell me any other webtoons, anime, or manga you are interested in, and I may talk about them in future episodes. The Toon Balloon Podcast can be listened to on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and more. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I had a lot of fun getting into the nitty-gritty of everything and deep diving and reading all this material. I feel like a freaking nerd, (laughs) but it is all fun. And like I said, if you got theories, if you got ideas, what's going on, please let me know through messaging me through either of those social medias I mentioned earlier. And if you got any thoughts you know, go right ahead and contact me. I would love to hear from you. Also, thank you to all of my followers that helped uh, give me some theories today so I could bring them up in the podcast episode. Thank you for participating. I love all of you. And you know what? Hopefully we can do this again. Now let's end this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time to listen to my humble podcast. I look forward to talking with you again. This is the Toon Balloon podcast. I was your host, Gooby. See you next time.